If you would take out the Word of God, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We continue our sermon series, The King We Need, through the book of 1 Samuel. I would say after that, one thing that we need more of is miles. <laughs> Hashtag more miles. I couldn't figure out who was singing. So, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 46 and 47, and then we're going to unpack this chapter together. What we normally do each week is we take a chapter of Scripture and we go verse by verse by verse by verse through the chapter and making application throughout. One of the things we're going to do today is uh, I'm going to summarize a lot of the chapter, uh, narrate it a bit, and then uh, we're going to do the application at the end. And so hold tight as we move to the end of the chapter. Um, and this is, you, you need this often. You need to just uh, read the Word of God together and go through the Word of God, making observation in your mind and your heart. And we're going to do that uh, together as a church body uh, to, today. So 1 Samuel chapter. 17, beginning in verse 46, if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Hear the word of Christ. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, but for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Oh God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to look into scripture and see this glorious story of this king we need one who doesn't fight with a sword and spear, but who has fought with two pieces of wood and nails as he was delivered over to death for us under your judgment, under your wrath for our sins and has been raised from the dead and is seated at your right hand. The battle is the Lord's and the battle has been won. Help us to look today to the one who is greater than David. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Be seated. I was a squirrely little seventh grader, probably weighed about 70 pounds, if that much. And my dream in life was to play for the Dallas Cowboys. Like, that is what I wanted to do. Uh, when I first understood what football was, the first game I ever watched was the Cowboys and the Redskins. And as any good child would do. You pick the cowboys over the Indians every time. And I became a ravenous cowboys fan. I still am today. And my, my goal as a child was to play for the Dallas Cowboys. And you know, growing up, people tell you, you can, you can be anything. If you just put your mind to it, you can do whatever you want. And I believe that until the day I met Benjamin and Kendall at middle school football practice. These were two massive post-pubescent eighth graders. 
And the coach, first day of practice, yelled out, we're going to find out who really wants to play today. And we started these old school drills. One of them was the Oklahoma drill. If you know what that is, you know it's probably outlawed today at most football practices. But what it meant for me is if I wanted to play, if I wanted time on the field, I was going to have to get hit really hard by Kendall and Benjamin. And so I jumped to the front of the line, and they were the first two up there. And the coach said, we're going to find out if you really want to play today. Who wants to go against these monsters, against these Goliaths? And, and I wanted to play, so I jumped up there. And the first rep, I got destroyed. And it, they even, in that rep, felt sorry for me. And we were friends, and they were like, I'm not going to hit you that hard, man. You shouldn't even be up here. And they sort of took it easy on me. And the coach, I remember, walked over to them and grabbed them by the face mask and was screaming, do you feel sorry for him? He wants to play. And under their breaths, I'm sure they were saying, yeah, we feel really sorry for him. <laughs> and then the second rep, I literally have no idea what happened on the second rep. I don't remember it. I do know there was nothing supernatural that came over me. There were no angels that came to my rescue. I didn't win the victory in that moment. I was destroyed. I, don't even, I literally right now cannot remember the rest of that practice. And I did get to play a little bit for my bravery that year. I got to play on the kickoff team that year as a seventh grader. But two or three years later, four concussions later, actually, I had to stop playing football. Uh, my heart had outwilled my brain or destroyed my brain. I, I, I was, this was not going to work for me. It, it wasn't I could do or be whatever I wanted to be. And I had to come to terms with that uh, on the football field. And in light of the text that we're looking at today, you're probably thumbing through it, David and Goliath, you were probably expecting a more fairy tale ending to that story. You were probably expecting some great triumph on the football field where I got to all of a sudden be the star of the, uh, of the game. And, and as you know, today, I'm, I'm, I know I look like a great athlete, but I, I didn't even make it past my sophomore year. And, and that's one of the problems when we think David and Goliath is we begin to think in these fairy tale ways. We begin to think in these happily ever after ways. And we romanticize this story in such a way that we forget that we cannot mystically do whatever we want to. And sometimes it doesn't matter how much faith you have. The giants of the here and now sometimes win. Sometimes they win in the battle. God wins the war, but sometimes the giants are just too big for us to defeat. And that's the point of this chapter, is that we can't do whatever we want on our own. The, the world's problems are gigantic. Your problems are gigantic. And you can't defeat them unless someone else steps in your place and defeats them for you. That's the point of 1 Samuel chapter 17. As we look at this chapter, as we begin, first of all, we see Israel and the Philistines are still making war with one another. The chapter begins with Israel on one mountain and the Philistines on another mountain. 
And, and we're, we, we look at the scene and we're to remember God has given Israel the land. And throughout 1 Samuel, we're to ask, why are the Philistines still there? There's sort of this pest nation that keeps rising, but God has given them the land. And there's still a problem. They are giant obstacles in the way of God's promises. And they're represented by one literal giant. His name is Goliath. He stands over eight foot tall. And he's not, you know, sometimes we think eight foot tall. We think some skinny basketball player. That's not who Goliath was. He was over eight foot tall and he was jacked. He was huge. He comes from a people who were huge people. And he stands on one side of the mountain and decked out in the state-of-the-art gear. His battle equipment probably weighed 250 pounds. And he stands on one side of the mountain heckling the people of God. He is literally the Philistines' champion. He is the logo for the enemy of God. We even read in the first part of this chapter that his, his equipment was made out of mail. And the word for mail is scales. And he looks like a metal serpent. He looks like a metal snake standing before the people of God, heckling them from one side of the mountain. And Israel is scared to death. They know God has given them the land. But they've reached this obstacle. The Philistines, we just can't get them out. And now we have this giant who stands before them. And he is heckling the people of God. He is issuing smack talk across the mountain. At one part in verses 8 through 10, he tells them, Why in the world are you even here? He says, Why are you even coming to fight me? You stand no chance. You can't see me. You will not beat me. You will not defeat me. And he says, just for fun, I tell you what. You go find a warrior. You go find someone who wants to fight. And by the way, where's your king Saul? I, I heard he's so tall and he's so brave. Where is he? Bring him out here. I will fight him and humiliate you and him before the world. You can't defeat me. Let's have a one-on-one -on -one main event match. And whoever loses will become the other people's slave. And the people of God are fearful. They are annoyed. They are humiliated. They don't know what to do. And we get down to even verse 12. And notice how, or verse 11. Notice how verse 11 starts. When Saul and Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That's the state of the situation. They are scared to death of the Philistines, and they are scared to death of the Philistine, Goliath. But notice how verse 12 begins. Now David. And that is to bring hope. Because we remember last chapter... This little boy tending sheep, the last among his brothers, not the oldest, not the biggest, not the one we would have picked out of the lineup to be king. No, the little shepherd boy who plays a harp. He has been anointed king of Israel. And so you see the giant 
and you see the Philistines, everyone is scared, and we know how great stories go. Now David, oh yes, the one anointed with the Spirit of God. And, and, and there's even mention here of his older brothers to remind us it's not them. It is David who has been given the promised spirit. It is David who is from the tribe of Judah. It is David who is from Bethlehem. It is David who is from the line of Jesse. David, the shepherd boy. And we find out in that section that David is still a, a bivocational shepherd. He, he's been anointed king. He saw his armor bearer, but he's going back and forth to his father's home. And his, his dad, who is worried about what's going on on the battlefield, sends him supplies for his brothers, sends him supplies for the armies. And David goes to, to hang out on the battlefield, and he's walking around, and he, he starts to hear things. Notice verse 23. And as he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, reminding us what's happened so far. He came up of the ranks of the Philistines. He comes to the front of the line and he spoke the same words as before. You little peon slaves, you can't do anything to win this battle. And notice, back to David. Now David. And now David heard him. Everyone's heard him, and it hasn't mattered. Everyone else has been scared, but David hears him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said to David, have you seen this man? They say to David, why aren't you running? David's like, what's the big deal? This jerk giant? I, I hear what he's saying. And everybody's grabbing and pulling him back. Have you not heard this man? Have you not seen him? Surely he has come to defy Israel. Now defy throughout this chapter means to stand against. And what the Philistines are doing is they are standing against Israel and the land God promised them. God promised them land and now Saul is the face of defiance. He's going to keep Israel from the land. And notice, and the king will enrich the man who kills him, Saul. This is Saul's strategy. He ain't going to war, but he'll send somebody else, and then he will give them great riches. He will even give them one of his daughters if they defeat the giant. And he will make his father's house free in Israel. No more taxes. They're free. Verse 26 and David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And notice how David phrases it, and takes away the approach, reproach of Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's reminding the people they don't have the promise. Circumcision was a sign of the promise, the sign of Abraham. We have the promise. I don't care how big he is. He doesn't have the promise of God. They are not the promised people of God. And who does he think he is that he should defy the armies of the living God? How could he defy us? We have the promise of God. And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now it's crucial to see how David views the battle. See, we often think David is about David. 
He's not. He's about the Lord. And he's fighting for the Lord's name. And the way the Lord makes much of his name is he gives his people goodness. He gives his people the promises. And now by standing in the way of the promises, Goliath is opposing the Lord's name. And David says, I'm going to defend the Lord's name. And basically, he's saying here, who cares about the reward? Who cares about Saul? We are called to defend the name of the Lord and to take what the Lord has given us. And now Samson, or Samson, where does that come from? (laughs) Goliath stands in the way. And as David is, he's the classic little brother who thinks he can take anyone. Jonah thinks he can take anyone in our house. Walked up to Titus last Saturday night and just picked a fight with him. Five minutes later, Titus was spitting on his forehead. (laughs) And here's David in seeing the battle. What are you guys doing? He's so courageous that his older brother says to him, would you stop running your mouth? Why are you here, little sheep boy? No, you have a heart recital. And David says, well, I'm only telling y'all the truth. And he begins to just sort of run his mouth around the camp. And finally, Saul hears about it. And Saul says, bring him to me. And then in verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistines to fight with him. For you are but a youth. Remember the description of David last chapter? He's just a boy. You're a small boy. You're a baby-faced boy. And he has been a man of war, literally a warrior, a skilled warrior, longer than you have been alive, David. You're facing a giant, and he's not just big. He's skilled at what he does. He is a skilled warrior. And David said, your servant used to keep sheep. And we go, oh, yeah, okay, that's right. You're a little sheep boy. That's what qualifies you to go to war. But notice he continues. And when there was a lion or a bear, he he says, and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered him. And we're beginning to see the aggression of David. Before our eyes, David is turning into this bloodthirsty warrior that we're going to see the rest of the book and even in the second Samuel. He says, oh, first of all, you don't know what it's like to be a shepherd. Out in the pasture, I have to fight lions and bears. And I don't hide from them. When they come in to steal the lambs, I go after them. And I've gone after lions and bears. And and I have struck them and I have delivered the sheep from its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, the lion and bear. And I struck him and I killed him. And if your servant has struck down both lions and bears, this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. He says, you don't get what a shepherd has to do. I've had to chase down lions and bears, grab them and kill them and pry little little lambs from the mouth of bears and lions. And listen, Saul, I know he's big. I know he's outfitted in this great gear. 
But he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't have the promise of God. And guess what he's doing? Notice as the text continues, verse 36, for he has defied the armies of the living God. He has picked a fight he can't win. Armies of the living God refer to the host of heaven, the armies of heaven that God uses to protect his name. That's who he's picked a fight with. And then verse 37, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Okay, if that's what you want. You, you think you little shepherd boy can take the giant yeah, I know you're talking all spiritual, armies of the Lord and all that. Okay, the Lord be with you. Go, have at it. And, and David paints a picture here of us, for us, of shepherding. And shepherding as warfare. What has he had to do in the field? Protect the sheep. And now what he, is he doing on behalf of the Lord? Protecting the sheep. You have an uncircumcised Philistine and he is preying on God's sheep. And I will be the shepherd who stands in the front of the battle and defeats him in the name of the Lord. Why? Because God is a good shepherd. In the next section, Saul says, okay, you want to go? Here's some gear. Here's my, here's my armor. Take it with you. And David says, no, I don't need that. He goes and gets some rocks, slingshot, and a shepherd's bag. And a rod. He says, I'm going to fight like a shepherd. And it paints a picture for us of God. God fights for his sheep. He calls Israel his sheep. And he defends his sheep. Psalm 23, that, that we hear so often, he is a good shepherd. And while Saul is fighting like, like the kings of the nations, battle gear, David is fighting like God. A shepherd. And that's why when we read the Bible, we have to remember the shepherds are the heroes. Little, little kids in Israel at some point probably started playing with shepherd figurines. Because they were the heroes. The shepherds weren't just the little mousy kids over to the side that with the towel on their head and the plays that we have. And, you know, little Johnny, he doesn't like to speak. He doesn't like to do much. Let's make him a shepherd over to the side and he doesn't say much. That's not the view Israel would have had of shepherds. Rugged warriors who stepped to the front of the battle because they were like God who shepherded his people. And when we read in Scripture, God is a warrior. What we are to see is a Fierce shepherd who is God with fire in his eyes ready to kick the teeth in of any wolf who would prey on his people. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why? Because God takes his rod and he takes his staff and he smashes wolves in the face. That's why they comfort us. And that's how we're to view God. And that's how we're to view this shepherd going into battle here. And notice verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David. David's coming out to the battlefield at this point. Notice he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He, he sees David and he thinks it's a joke. 
And this would have been a part of ancient warfare. Just to humiliate the opponents. You would have sent out an animal in battle gear. And said, we, look how pathetic you are. We can send our mangy dogs to fight you. Some point you may even send a child out to say, we don't, you're so weak, we can defeat you with our children. And that's what Goliath thinks is happening here. And he is angered when he sees the boy coming toward him. In verse 43, the Philistine said to David, Am I but a dog that you come at me with sticks? You, you send a little boy with a stick? And he begins to curse David by his gods. In the name of Dagon, he curses David. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Isn't it great that the Bible includes trash talk? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? You little pathetic little boy. You come out here like I'm some dog. I'm about to rip you to pieces and feed you to the birds. And then David says, oh, you have all this state-of-the-art equipment. You got that javelin nobody else can hold or throw. You're so big. You're so mighty. I don't even need equipment because I have the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts the one who commands the armies of heaven. And guess what the armies of heaven are jealous for? They are jealous for the name of God. And God is going to make himself a great name by giving us the land that is under your feet. And so you know what God's about to do? He's about to lop off your head. He's about to destroy you. Notice verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And you imagine everyone standing around hearing that laughing. I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And David is saying here, I will cut your head off in the Lord's name. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air. Not only are we going to defeat you, we are about to wipe out the Philistines and raise them to the ground. And the wild beasts will feast on their flesh. That all the earth, notice this is the point, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. If God doesn't fulfill his promises, he is a liar. And he has promised us this land. And he will give us this land for his name's sake. Because he will prove to all people that he is good. In verse 47, all the assembly may know the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. The only way we will be victorious here. I'm a little shepherd boy. You're right. I have a rod. I have some rocks. The only way we're going to defeat you is in the name of the Lord, by the Lord's power, and he's going to do it. So, so centuries later, everybody's going to look back and say, look what God did for Israel. But that's the problem with the story, is we don't look back at this story and say, look what God did, did for Israel. We often say, look what God can do for me. That's not the point of the story. It's what God is doing for Israel. And notice verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly. Notice, he ain't scared. The, the giant comes and you would expect just a little flinch. Oh, my goodness, he is big. 
He charges after him with no hesitation to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone. Now this stone would have been the size of a tennis ball. And he probably placed it in a sling here. And he begins to whip it around and he slings it. And notice, struck the Philistine on his forehead. And notice the stone sank into his forehead. Now, notice the great detail here. You would think, oh, he hit him in the head, he fell down. But the writer wants to go, no, he hit him in the head, the forehead, right there. And when the stone hit him, size of a tennis ball, it sank in, stuck in his head. Why? Genesis 3.15, there is one who will crush the serpent's head. And now you have a stone stuck in a giant's head. And it is to remind us that God is fulfilling his promises to his people. He will cut the snake's head off. And notice he continues, he fell to the ground. And then verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and he took out his sword and he drew it out of its sheath and he killed him and he cut his head with it, off his head with it. Imagine, David, oh, I hit him. Oh, he's down. He's probably still writhing in pain. And David runs over and stands over him. What do I do now? And he reaches down and he grabs his own sword been hard for him to even pick up little boy picks it up places it on his neck and begins to saw through his neck bone then picks up the head and holds it veggie tales storybook time right <laughs> it would have been a disgusting scene but David wants to hold the head up for the people of God and to say the giant has been defeated. The giant has been destroyed. And we see in verses 51 through 54, what does Israel do? They begin to charge. The Philistines are standing there shocked on the side of the hill, looking down, going, watching the little sheep boy saw off the giant's head. And they began to realize, if that can happen, what's going to happen to us? And they began to charge and run through the mountains. And so what, is, what does Israel do? They begin to charge after the Philistines. And the text says they plunder them. They take their goods. They, they take back trophies of victory. And, and David, even in that section, he gets... Um, Goliath's battle armor. And instead of taking it back to Israel and putting it in a museum, y'all remember what we did to Goliath? Remember what I did to Goliath? He just simply goes and throws it in a tent. And he says, I got something even better. He takes back a head. Verse 57. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. You see the picture? Blood dripping everywhere. Saul, this is what you were supposed to do, man. 
This is what you were supposed to do. This giant head. You're king of Israel. You failed. But Saul doesn't even see it that way. He doesn't even understand what's going on. Verse 58. Whose son are you, you young man? And David answered, I am the son of the servant of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And if you're in Israel and you read this story, you realize, yes, he is the one from whom the kingdom would come from. That's why he won. But Saul doesn't even see it that way. Saul is thinking, how can I reward this boy and his family? Now, David, remind me who your daddy is. Because they no longer have to pay taxes. And I got to give you one of my daughters. We got to have a wedding. That's all Saul's thinking about as blood drips, drips from the head of the giant in front of him. And, and Jesse, David's dad, had asked for a token from the battlefield. He had said, bring me back some of the Philistines' coins just to tell me that the battle is going well. And here David says, I got something better than some Philistine junk. I got the head of Goliath dripping with blood. To say the Lord wins. And the Lord will do what he promises for his people. And so we get to that point. And some of you thought, oh, we're going to get out early today. Not so fast. How do you apply this to your life? Do, do we go out today and pick a fight with the biggest Muslim we could find? I'm only going to fight you in my flip-flops. And the Lord will deliver me. Is that how we apply it? You laugh, but we apply it in such crazy ways as if we can do these mystical things in the name of the Lord. We can do all things. That's not the point of the text. It's God can do and will do whatever he says. And he will use us to do it. How do you apply this to your life? First of all, you have to reject the notion that you are the hero. When you read David and Goliath and any other story in the Bible, reject the notion that you are the hero. Even as we've gone through 1 Samuel, some of y'all have come to me and said, oh, I didn't know I was Saul. I thought I was Samson. I thought I was someone more heroic. No, you're not the hero of the story. You're not. The Bible is not a story about you. And we learn this in life, don't we? That we can't be the hero. We learn this every day of our life. That giants sometimes win. Some of you are here today and you're thinking, oh, I thought there was going to be a formula, a gimmick. Because the giants seem to have control over my life and they seem to be winning. There are unexpected expenses, unexpected tragedies. The wrong politicians get elected at times. Other unskilled, less qualified people get the job instead of me. We experience that week after week after week. And we can despair if we think we're the hero. Because we're going to say, God's not doing what he said. I'm supposed to have victory. Why am I not having victory? And most of our frustration in home and school and work is that we're trying so hard to be the hero. We're trying to have it my way. We're trying to do it in my own strength. And it doesn't always happen. And then here's the catch. Sometimes you do get it your way. Sometimes you do have things the way you want them. Sometimes you do have, quote, victory. Does it make you any happier? 
No, you just long for something else. Because you're not the hero. You're not supposed to be the hero. No, this is one episode in a story called the Bible. Remember, the Bible is one story. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a dictionary. It's a story that begins in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. And it's a story about one person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the hero of 1 Samuel 17. This is about Jesus, the warrior king. Because from Adam, from Adam, who fells in the garden, we see king after king after king after king after king who fells. From Adam in the garden, we see person, hero after hero after hero, prophet, priest. We see judges. And what do they all do? They all fail one after another. They're failing, 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 failing. 1 Samuel 17 is leading us to the one who doesn't fail. This ain't even about David. David fails. Because as we keep reading his story, he falls into sin. He falls into temptation. He kills a man just to get what he wants. His wife, the man's wife, he fails. David's not even the hero. This is causing us to long for one who is greater than David. David and Goliath is about God just like every other story in the Bible is about God. And it's about God fulfilling his promises to his people. Nothing is going to stand in the way of God doing what he says he's going to do. Nothing, no one, not even a Goliath, not even sin, Satan, and death can stand in the way of God fulfilling his promises. God hasn't promised to you that you can do and have whatever you want. No, but he has promised to deliver you from Satan, sin, and death. And nothing is going to stand in his way of doing that. And this story points to that reality. Just like David lops off the head of the giant, there is one who has lopped off the head of sin, Satan, and death. And his name's Jesus. And so we're to think, what is the giant that I must face? Well, it begins in Genesis chapter 3. There is a snake. There is one who takes on armor similar to Goliath. There is one who takes on armor similar to the Pharaoh. He comes into the garden like a snake. And he stands in the way of what God has promised. And he says, you can't have it. But God says, yes, you can. I'm going to give you what is good. And Satan stands in the way and he lies to you. And you know what you do? You believe Satan's lies. And you sin and you join forces with Satan as if there is something other than God that can satisfy you. And so you know what stands in the way of God's promises for you? Satan and your sin. And there is a chasm between you and God called death. You are separated from God in spiritual death. And if you stay in that state, you will eternally be separated from God when you die physically. Satan's sin and death is the giant standing in your way of God's promises for you. And that's why we're to look to the warrior king. It's not you. It's not David. It's one who is greater than David. From the tribe of Judah. Born in Bethlehem. From the line of Jesse, who has stepped up to Satan, sin, and death and destroyed them for you. You know what Jesus does on the cross? The same thing David did when he sawed off the giant's head. He goes to the cross and he takes 
Satan's sword. Two-edged sword, sin and death. And he takes it. You know what he does with it? He uses the sword to destroy himself. So that the enemy, the giant, has no power over you anymore. The battle is won. As Jesus is hanging on the cross under the wrath of God, that is Jesus holding up the head of Satan's sin and death and telling you the battle has been won. You don't have to fear. And how do, you, how do you apply this to your life? You're not to be like David. You're not to be like David. You're not even supposed to have faith like David had. You're to have faith greater than David had. Because you've seen a cross and a resurrection. David never saw a cross and a resurrection. And he charged after the giant. And so as you struggle with the guilt of your sin... Some of you are here today and you're, you're thinking about what you have done in your past. And you're thinking about that event in your life. And, and from that moment when you chose to be that way, when you chose to do those things, you have thought there is no way God could ever love me. God has promised to love you in Jesus. But you, you have said there is no way he could ever forgive me. That There is no way he would ever accept me. Here's what I'm going to call you to do today. Be strong in the Lord and fight. Because the battle has been won. Jesus has endured sin for you, sin's curse for you, under the wrath of God for you. Be strong in the Lord and fight and believe the promises of God. Don't believe what you can do about that sin. Believe what Jesus has done for you with that sin, enduring God's justice for you. The battle has been won. Some of you are here today and you're scared to death of death. You're scared. Each day ticks off. You feel it just creeping into your bones. And death is coming. Oh, be strong in the Lord. Have a faith greater than David. Because you have seen a former corpse who has stood up and said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And if you believe in me, I will give you a resurrected kingdom. We're to have a faith greater than David because we have seen things David never saw. We have heard things David never heard. Some of you are here today and you're just discontent with life from one job to the next, from one goal to the next. Some of us are here today and you're discontent with where you are as a Christian. You're thinking, I thought I would be more obedient by now. I thought I would be a better person by now. That sin that I struggled with in high school, I still struggle with it. I don't like who I am. Oh, be strong in the Lord. Because there is a kingdom greater than David's. And you will be saved to sin no more. But you can't fight that giant alone. Sin will send you to hell. Cancer will kill you. Hopelessness and despair will drive you to the ground. That's why you need to be strong in Jesus, not yourself. And you trust in what Jesus has done for you. And we are to have a courage greater than David. As you picture David running quickly to the giant, he's charging out. I mean, he's running his mouth in a way where you're like, oh, you need to temper that. That borderline's 
arrogance and pride, but he's strong in the Lord because he knows the Lord will win the battle. And we can have courage greater than David because we have seen the battle already won. We know the end of the story. We have the end. We know we win the game. We know it's, it's in the book. It's over. And so what do we do? Do we get scared when things don't go our way? We look out at the world and, oh my goodness, what's going on? Oh my goodness. No, we charge. We charge to the battle. We run to the battle with no fear. In a world that is defying the name of Jesus, we declare the name of Jesus. We say Jesus is back from the dead and he is coming to rule and reign. And we do that with great courage. Some of you need to have courage greater than David today. And it may call you to leave family and friends and go to a hard place for the sake of the gospel. Oh, you can do it. Because you've seen one greater than David. And he's told you the end of the story. Some of you just may need to go into work tomorrow and share the gospel with somebody. Just to prove to yourself that there's one greater than David. What do you have to fear? The one greater than David said they may kill your body. But they can't destroy your soul if you're in Christ. You may get your head lopped off. It's probably not going to happen in Richmond to you tomorrow. But you may feel a little rejection and a little fear and a little awkwardness. So what? When Jesus comes back, he'll put your head back on. When Jesus comes back, he'll make all things right. How do we know we've already seen it? The reality is there are some giants too big to face. But the real danger here is stepping into the stead of Goliath and defying the name of the Lord. See, some of us here today, we would never say, I'm Goliath in this story. We would never say, I'm the giant sinner. But you are. You defy the name of the Lord when you doubt his promises. You defy the name of the Lord when you reject Jesus, the name of the Lord. You are fighting against God in a giant way. And you are defying God. And Goliath's head in the hand of David is to point to another battle. You know what Revelation tells us at the end? That there is another king coming whose name is Jesus who will raise all of his enemies to the ground. And the same language used here where the birds of prey will come down and feast upon the flesh of his enemies. And people will be crawling into rocks and they will be crying out to the mountains, fall on me mountain, fall on me mountain because I don't want to face the judge who's Jesus. Some giants are too big to face. But there is a giant slayer that you don't want to face. And his name's Jesus. Let's pray.